Meredith Monday, new week. Stay with us. Chris, how's it going? It's going well. How are you doing, Mike? Good, good. I uh, have just been hanging out with you and Todd on Google. What did, what did, that was YouTube. On YouTube. Um, and Gate crashed your party. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. I'm glad you got on there and asked that That was question. so cool. I drove home, probably broke about about like <laughs> you know seven different traffic laws and probably I'm going to get get one of those envelopes that said uh, 100 bucks or something but um uh it was worth it yeah, it was worth it I got to gate crash I got to you know it was good seeing you guys in in action live as well that was fun um unfortunately it wasn't as fun for Todd but we'll get the yeah. the technology ironed out for next Well you can't so. expect it to get I mean I mean there's a lot of lot of stuff going on there it, it worked yeah. really well for the first time um so I'm just thinking this is probably this is going to come out for our tomorrow, so Monday. They, they won't be able to see that if someone's listening to this when it comes out. They won't be able to see that for another week, right? Or, or when when are you going to drop that one? Well, I will produce that as a podcast episode that will come out normally on well my Friday, what your Saturday, okay. right? Um, but it's up on on YouTube now, so anyone can go to YouTube and watch. Oh, it. Oh, really? Okay, cool so you can get ahead of the game. Nice. Um, go check it out. And um, do, do all those little comments get stored or not really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they'll be there on the side. <laughs> no ways. Cool. <laughs> the whole time. Uh, yeah. So you'll see a thousand of my comments there. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Uh, excellent. Well, um, so it's, our, it's my Sunday. It's your Saturday night. Uh, Chris is having a podcasting marathon. I'm having a preach slash podcast marathon, and um, and we're just uh, going to be moving on now. Uh, we basically this this Monday, if you're joining us for the first time, we've uh, started to look at some covenant theology uh, from the ground up and uh, from a Kleinian perspective, and uh, we've been using uh, Chris's book, uh, The Tale of Two Adams. So hopefully you have uh, heard some of that already. Of heard us talk about that already but um if not go back and just uh especially because we dealt with definitions and and the like uh in chapter one in the last two episodes so go back and check those out and uh and then when you feel you're able to uh, come and look at this then then come back here or listen to this and go back you know whatever way you want to do it and then of course you can you can download chris's book and follow along in that as well uh which would be super helpful it's a great book to get intro on covenant covenant theology in general um, and, and then just with a Kleinian spin, it's just perfect. So um, we're on chapter two, in the beginning, covenant and creation. Um, and so you say, you start us off there, Chris, by saying that stories are best told from the beginning. Mm. Isn't that, you know, what are you getting at there? What, why are you so concerned that we need to know that point? Well, um, again, I'm afraid that your listeners are going to get tired of me talking or referencing Norman Shepard, but yeah. it did start as a response to him. And he tended to start with Abraham mm-hmm. and work from there. And I thought, well, that's um, that, that's a little frustrating for someone who's trying to interact with you because uh, there's more to the story that comes before Abraham. Um, and he does get into it a little bit here and there in his book, uh, What Happened with uh, Adam. But 
but not very um, thoroughly. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Todd and I just um, the episode of the Glory Cloud podcast that just came out yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, we dealt with a question from a listener who had heard um, Klein and Kleinians accused of simply doing New Covenant theology, and I don't know how familiar you yeah. are with yeah, I am New Klein. Covenant theology. Yeah. But um, I had to listen to some podcasts to get myself up to speed with that, and they start with Noah. Ah, um, true, yeah. And so, uh, you know, Klein would look at both of those and say, well, you're you're trying to build an edifice, you're trying mm. to build a house by starting a foot off the ground. Yeah. Um, and that obviously doesn't work if you've ever tried to build anything. Mm. Um, so I, I think it... Uh, it not only helps in terms of understanding the the total story, but it also fits better with um, what the Bible actually does, and uh, especially with Paul's analysis of all mm-hmm. of this mm-hmm. to start with Adam in the in uh, Genesis one. Oh, totally, yeah. And hopefully, as we keep going, people will see that further and further. It truly is just a pivotal point. You have to start in the beginning. It's so counterintuitive in so many ways, but well, it's actually as you point out, it's not really counterintuitive. You know, you, you start every story from the beginning. I suppose, mm-hmm. hence the, um, you know, um, the pointer to that. I mean, we we just wouldn't know who the characters are and what what the ultimate significance of the ending is, or when the ending should be. And um, and as you point out, and um, as we've actually we've done a whole thing on on uh, previous episodes about Tolkien and true myth and C.S. Lewis, and you know, it's a very similar sort of idea in that. Uh, we're getting our idea of narrative and beginning and middle and end from from uh, God in the way that He set up the world and 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 the way things move, and um, and the greatest of those stories, as it were, um, is that which starts in Genesis. And so, uh, yeah, it makes sense that if you want to get any level of of theology. Um, correct you got to at least start from the beginning fine if nothing's there then you move on you know but um quite the opposite is true as you point out um just just quickly before we move on it's interesting that new covenant connection um mm. i uh this is this would be a while ago now but um i think you know actually just as you mentioned that i remember this is i was trying to find my bearings theologically i mean this is you know honestly 2005 you know something like that uh just on the covenants issue and uh came across some new covenant theology which actually put me in touch with Kleinians uh <laughs> you know so I'm just wondering as you said that yeah. what is the connection there why is that happening what, what uh, can you think of that offhand or is that is that run a little dry for you well I suspect that um people who disagree with Klein are wanting to use the connection as a an insult basically yeah. um and I, I think the connection comes in the way the New Covenant theology views the Mosaic Covenant, and um, with the way guys like um, Lee Irons have uh, written about and preached that about uh, yeah. the law, right? And that was it. Didn't he use like Douglas Moo's thing or something like that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's yeah. coming back to me now. That was it. <laughs> wow, just a blast from the past. Yeah, but in fact, just uh, for the record, uh, New Covenant theology is nothing like Kleinian theology, um, no. and it really is a very, very superficial connection. It might be helpful only insofar as you know some of the best representatives of that view have done some scholarship that uh, is helpful in terms of just just pushing back on some artificial, um, you know categories that, that that people have used in a more monocovenantal or traditional 
sort of reformed setting uh, that leads to weird, weird sort of um, sabbatical views and or at least views views on the Sabbath and that sort of thing. So yeah, I mean you've got angles like that where you might be able to kind of integrate some of the insights that they're working on. But other than that, I mean it's a totally different system. They don't understand law in any way, having begun in the garden or on man's heart or in any way connected to the new covenant and you know just just. Yeah, it's it's a disjointed system. It's it's almost like a less severe form of dispensationalism, from what I've seen. <laughs> you know, right? Yeah. It's like a halfway house between dispensationalism and covenant theology. Yeah, but I mean, they just don't acknowledge any covenant of grace at all in the Old Testament. So, you know, just that yeah. alone. Yeah. Um, but anyway, sorry, little uh, detail there. But um, the uh, you say that as the beginning of the story, the covenant of creation, I'm at page 47, by the way, uh, at the bottom there, the covenant of creation with Adam will make sense out of the covenant of grace that comes after the fall. In fact, if we don't understand the first covenant, we won't be able to understand the rest of the covenants. And so that's why this is important. I mean, this is huge. Um, we'll probably hit that as we go along these headings here, but what do you mean by that? Just as a bit of a summary and forecast. Well, what what I'm arguing in this chapter is that God uh, made a covenant of works with Adam, and it's because Adam failed at that covenant that there's even a need for the covenant of grace. Right. So if we just skip this and jump right into the covenant of grace, hmm. uh, it's almost like, well, why why is what is this an answer to? Yeah. Why is why is this even helpful? Yeah, and even just as we said in the previous episode and we were looking at chapter one i mean uh even just the idea of a works being uh, works covenant being necessary for a grace paradigm is is important in that um it, you know christ is doing something and giving us Absolutely. something and yeah and all of that roots into what adam failed in so yeah massively important now i suppose one of the big things and this is um hopefully not too much um, an objection for those who are in any way sort of um, introduced to Reformed theology, but, um, you know, for there definitely are those coming in or perhaps just uh, if they've gone into Calvinism uh, and they are interested and then they get into this covenant thing and uh, all of a sudden we're talking about creation being covenantal. And, you know, they're like, oh, sweet, I'll just pull out my Bible, you know, um, concordance. And, uh, and, you know, just go and have a hunt there for any, any covenants that are made in, uh, in Genesis, uh, even search the word covenants and, and coming up empty, you know, and yet we're right. making such a big deal out of that. So, uh, what's the deal there? How do we, how do we know that, that, uh, creation was covenantal? You, you give a few reasons. Maybe we should just, uh, work through them. I mean, you start with the Old Testament references. All right, so sorry, recording again. We had a little drop there with Chris. Um, so I was just saying the Old Testament references seem to indicate that creation was covenantal. Uh, what are you saying there, Chris? Um, you know, I start out looking at some places in uh, Jeremiah where the prophet Jeremiah talks about the Lord making a covenant with uh, the heavens and the earth. With, uh, that was good, uh, yeah. Night yeah. and day. Mm. And that takes us back even before uh, Adam and Eve were created. And Part of what Klein is wanting to point out here is that it's not as though God created and then said, you know what, I should make a covenant mm. with uh, my, hum my human creatures. Mm. Um, and that's the impression that you can get from um, some in the Reformed tradition is that there's this um, state of nature mm. in creation and then uh, covenant comes in after that. And I think the biblical witness is definitely that uh, the entire creative 
act of God was was covenantal. Klein even sees uh, God's fiats, let there be, yeah, um, in creation as covenant oaths. Very good. Uh, yeah, yeah, I love that point. So, so it's just, uh, it, you know, it's it, there's nothing artificial about it. You know, it's just woven into the fabric of the whole account, and you know that makes it so much more powerful in light of where the whole story is going. Um, because, you know, it just it lets us know God had this in mind from the very beginning, even before anything started. The whole thing works by way of covenant. It revolves around that 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 wheel, as it were. Um, I love uh, what you point out in, in chapter 33 um, of Jeremiah. Um, you know, this connection, there it is vividly. Thus says the Lord, if any of you could break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night, would not come at their appointed time. Only then could my covenant with my servant David be broken. So powerful. Mm, yeah. Yeah, what translation of the Bible are you using? Well, I, I used NRSV. different translations at different points. In oh, that particular you? case, I was using the NRSV. Yeah, because yeah, I noticed uh, at some point you used the King James, was it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was trying to uh, use my Greek and Hebrew and decide which translation captured what I uh, really ah. thought was the best best way to take it oh cool that's good to know it's helpful um okay cool so yeah i mean that's that's a really powerful verse and just comparing it to the covenant of grace directly you've got something crazy going on there um so yeah jeremiah 33 um what else is there another old testament reference there then down on page uh 50 uh from jeremiah 31 you have the exact same uh kind of thing Mm -hmm. um yeah, and uh, Hosea six seven. Yes, um, I love that. I mean, that that's very clear. Um, yeah. comparing the covenant that he made with Israel to the covenant that he made with Adam. Yeah, that's. I mean, there it is, and, and you know, you get right into the Adam thing there as well, beyond the creation covenant uh, or the 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 fiats at least. Um, just to read it for people who are listening, Hosea six seven. But they talking about Israel like Adam have transgressed the covenant. And you do point out there in the footnote that uh, there is some debate as to whether, you know, the, the word should be more a generic sort of man, that that's what Adam could mean. Um, but yeah, well, why, why are we going with that being Adam? Well, it it really becomes something so bland, it's not even worth saying yes, if you yes. put man in there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's like saying my, my dog bark, barks like a dog. <laughs> That's great. Uh, okay. I love that. Yeah. 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 You broke it down really well. And, and just, you know, one of the other things I was thinking is that even if you do um, go with the generic Adam there, just man, like, you know, but they, Israel, like men, have transgressed the covenant, you're saying the same thing. You know, it's sort of indicating that beyond Israel, there's this covenant. Right. Right. So, yeah. Um, it, 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 you know, unless I've misunderstood something there, but I think, um, you know, obviously th- that, and, and then just the, the whole covenant prosecution thing as well is what I always think. I mean, you it, it seems like, like there's a, there's a different reference point. Um, I, I'm thinking of that whole, um, that's part of Romans. Where is it where he says from, um, always from Adam to something they had not, they sinned, but they didn't transgress. Where is that again? Yes, uh, chapter 5, verse 13. Yes. Um, so, I mean, that's powerful as well because it indicates the same thing in that there was a transgression going on with Adam. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not like people stopped sinning, but they, they didn't knowledgeably transgress until that was republished again um, with Moses. 
And so you, you've got a, a similar reference point there, I suppose. You know, it just seems to be interwoven into the consciousness of Israel. Another another thing as well is just, um, and you, I don't know if you've got this here, but um, just maybe more implicitly, and maybe these are points that are better left for once you've already decided that creation was covenantal, but the, the whole um, ironic sort of priestly thing and the way the temple's created in seven days and, you know, that's clearly, uh, you know, you've got this amazing parallel at, at every turn there with Adam and the high priest, you know, and uh, and obviously there you've got a covenant going on um, and the whole thing being deeply covenantal and it, it just seems to be quite a weird p- comparison to creation if creation itself wasn't covenantal. What do you think about that? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and there are so many things like that. I mean, one of the other arguments that I make in this chapter is the connection that Paul makes all over the place between Adam and Christ. True. Um, that, that's the big one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the slam dunk right there. So, right. Um, yeah. You, you, you have a whole separate thing on that, don't you? Yeah, I've got a, a separate section of this chapter that deals with that. Okay, cool. So let's leave that till then. Point number two, though, beyond the Old Testament references. All right, have we dealt with covenant sanctions or is that down there as well that, yeah that's coming, got, up. that's coming up all right sorry spoiler uh <laughs> <laughs> number two god's word is his bond i love this point as well what are you saying yeah um that let's see take us to uh, hebrews um, hebrews six seventeen and 18 um he makes the point the author of hebrews does mm. that um god makes a promise and he swears an oath mm. um for it is impossible for god to lie um, we would have strong encouragement, we who have taken refuge to seize the hope that is set before us. Um, so God makes a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, and then in Genesis 15, he swears an oath to Abraham. Um, and so I'm, I'm linking that uh, back to the, the fiats in Genesis 1. Uh, God is swearing an oath um, so okay. I'm tying that in with co- where you have an oath, you have a covenant, right? Um, and his his covenant oath was so sure that what he said, "Let there be," it necessarily came to pass. It it be, it came into existence. Now that's definitely something big, and we want to come back to that. The third thing I think is a little bit more familiar to me, and perhaps to most as well, and that you've got the dual sanctions. Um, so the blessings and curses in that, you know, if you have those things, they must be representing a covenant blessing and a covenant curse, um, even though the word's not there, right? Right. And I think this will be maybe more intuitive. It'll make more sense to people um, on the face of it mm. that um, in terms of the blessings, um, we have especially and ultimately the the tree of life that's really the the main thing that is held out to adam and eve Mm. uh, that if they obey they will be able to partake of that tree Mm -hmm. Um, and then the curse we have in genesis 2 17 Mm -hmm. um, but uh, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat from it you will certainly die Mm. Um, so death and life are the two um sanctions or um, potential covenant outcomes yeah. that hinge on whether Adam obeys or disobeys. Yeah, great. Um, and, and I mean, there it is. I mean, every, I think if I'm not mistaken, um, uh, you, you defined it slightly differently, but a, a, a client sort of um, defines a covenant basically in that it's a, it's a promise 
that involves sanctions, right? That's the whole right. So and that know, those sanctions are enforced by God. Yeah. So where we find sanctions, we're dealing with a covenant. Totally. So there it is, and um, and those are uh, you know unmistakable. Um, what's going on with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, though? Um, did you? I think you said in this chapter that um, that one is connected to the one the sanction of death and the sanction of life to the other. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Uh, what did you mean by that? And how does that work? Well, um, it's, it's different between the tree, the two trees. There's from what we can tell in the text, there's nothing about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that had God not said anything about it, that Adam and Eve would have looked at it and said, Oh, you know what? I better not eat from that tree. Mm-hmm. Um, God had to specifically say, I'm placing this one off limits. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm not going to give you a reason necessarily. Just don't eat from that one. Mm-hmm. Um, now, with the tree of life, um, that, that just fascinates me. Mm-hmm. We see it um, clearly as bookends to the entire Bible. I'll I mean, here you. we have it in uh, Genesis chapter 2, but then we encounter it also in the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in chapter 22, um, producing, uh, tw- uh, 12 fruits every month, giving its fruit and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we also have, um, earlier in revelation chapter two, um, God says to the one who is victorious, I will grant to him to eat from the tree of life, mm-hmm. which is in the paradise of God. So, um, that's, it, that's the same principle that's at work way back in Genesis. Mm. Um, you know, Adam was to have been victorious and had he been, God would have granted him the right to eat from the tree of life. Totally. Yeah. And that helps as well in that, you know, just, just for those coming into it and thinking, you know, that, that if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, they basically would have lived in, in this life without sin you know, in a paradise for all eternity rather than there being any eschatology, but just having that held out. And I think we do come back to that at a later stage, but um, just having that held out and understanding that is is important, I think, in that it, it sort of relates to why it is that Christ earns that thing for us. Um, but, uh, you know, just before we move on, I don't know if you ever have read, I mean, you must have at some point, uh, I don't know if Klein talked about this often, but it just reminds me of this this thing where I think it's in, it must be in Kingdom Prologue, where he talks about trees as light bearers. Do, do, have you ever, mm. have you come across that? It's the, one of the most mind blowing yes. little sections in Kingdom Prologue for me. Um, I'll, I'll see if I can get it right. You know, just just uh, if anything you know, resonates with you. But basically, he's saying, you know, you got these glorious sort of trees that you know light sort of you know flows down through their branches visually. They've they're these refractors of light, so to speak, uh, bearers uh, of light, and so. Um, uh, they take what is heavenly and they essentially incarnate. They 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 show it to us, um, and in that way, you've got the tree of life, you know, as this glorious sort of uh, thing that that embodies the 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 heavenly sort of glory. <laughs> you know, I'm sure Klein had like a fourfold barrel term for this <laughs> heavenly glory light, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, basically, uh, and then produces fruit, and then and then. The the thing that he does is at the end of describing that, he says, well, this is obviously speaking about Christ who holds out life to us. 
And, you know, and then he quotes from, you know, Christ who says, take, eat, this is my body for you. Mm. <laughs> Do you remember that part? Vaguely, but oh. um, it sounds very Kleinian. <laughs> right. I remember just, you know, being struck by that. I was thinking, well, it got me thinking. I mean, the, the tree of life, I know you, you speak of it literally at the end. Um, and obviously it's mentioned in, in Revelation, as we've just read. Um, but it got me thinking that perhaps the tree of life itself is really, you know, it's not so much that we're going to get to heaven and be amazed by this amazing tree that we get fruit from. But it's almost that we see the true tree, you know, and receive life from the true uh, fruit, right. so to speak, you know, in Christ himself. And we're amazed by Christ, you know, in a symbolic way. Uh, right. Yeah. So, I, you know, I suppose there's no way to know for sure at the end of the day, but it's just kind of an interesting thought. That's a great point. I mean, um, the, the, the point of the language of the book of Revelation may not be... Um, that we're going to be trying to, um, you know, chip up the, the street so we mm. can have some extra gold in our yes. vault in our heavenly mansion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, the point is just to paint the picture of how glorious yeah. the, the place is that God is building for us. And just making um, use of that prophetic idiom all throughout, just things we know to speak of, you know, or even biblical imagery to speak of what it unlocks ultimately in its substance. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's just amazing, though, uh, one way or another. But um, coming back to this, though, um, there it is. And uh, you got these two trees, uh, these two outcomes, um, and the covenant sanctions bearing witness to the fact that there was indeed a covenantal reality at the very beginning. Um, all right. So then the next question is, how do we, as you ask it here, how do we know that the covenant of creation was a covenant of works? Because just saying it's a it's a covenant, you know, it doesn't, doesn't really... Uh, get us locked down on on the grace works issue. So how do we know that it was? If anything, it seems like, you know, it's more akin to yeah, as Jeremiah talks about it, more akin to grace, or it's being compared to a gracious covenant. So what do we say about that? Yeah, um, the the first argument that I make is that God created Adam and Eve in His own image, and I think mm. that's actually a powerful argument for mm. this being a a covenant of works because what is God doing in this narrative in Genesis one and two, he's working and then he rests on the seventh day. Mm. And the implication for the creatures who are made in his image is that they are to work like God to do the work that God gives them to do and then join God in that same rest. Yeah. So yeah. The, the emphasis is on the work. Yes. Yes, totally. Um, just by virtue of the patterning, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. Good. Um, and then, of course, you've got the two Adams thing. This is called the tale of two Adams, after all. Um, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so what are you saying about that? Uh, we have made sort of uh, allusion to it, but uh, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians, uh, what's in there? Right. So in Romans 5, 12 through 18, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 40 through 50, and then also in a really fascinating way in Ephesians chapter 5, verses uh, 22 through 33, um, Paul compares and contrasts Adam and Christ. And um, if I could boil it down, I would say that um, really this kind of, this requires um, a covenant to be there for both Adam and for Christ mm. um, in order for this whole thing to make sense. Otherwise, sense, yeah. on what basis are they being compared and contrasted? Mm. 
Totally. Um, yeah. And we wouldn't want to look at Christ and say God was dealing with him on the basis of grace because if that was the case, uh, Jesus could have obeyed perfectly and God could have said, well, you know, um, since this is all gracious, um, mm. I'm just not going to give you the reward because grace is free and I don't right. want you thinking that you're earning anything from me. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. So. What is, uh, just looking at that First Corinthians, um, that um, you, you say yeah, there is uh, no doubt that the last Adam is Jesus Christ because who else became a life, the life-giving spirit? Um, what does that mean again? The life-giving spirit. What's the deal there? Is Jesus well, the Holy I think, Spirit? <laughs> I think that that is a reference to the resurrection. And we see some of that same thing going on in Second uh, Timothy 3.16, if Yes. I'm remembering the reference correctly, okay. where um, Jesus is vindicated or declared justified um, in his resurrection. And I think Paul's point by calling uh, him the life-giving spirit is mm. to say that then the, um, the work of what Jesus has accomplished and the work of the Holy Spirit is so um, closely intertwined mm. uh, that he can speak this way. He's not uh, denying the doctrine of the Trinity and saying that um, the person of the Son and the person of the Spirit are the same. That's not the point yeah. at all. Yeah, um, yeah, but it, it is a provocative way to bring that work of the Spirit together, with both in resurrection and in what then uh, the resurrection produces in us, right? Exactly, yeah. because the, the life that Jesus has in his resurrection is what the Holy Spirit is working into us. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Classic Paul. <laughs> we can imagine, classic, you can imagine yeah. uh, Peter reading that and going, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> it's like some things in our, in these writings are difficult to understand. Yes. Uh, just moving on. Chalk that up to difficult. <laughs> we'll put that in the difficult bucket. Uh, but yeah, no, it's great. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, Paul is just such a genius, you know, he's just seeing these connections, almost a little bit like Klein, not wanting to canonize Klein or anything, but uh, <laughs> you know, it might not be the worst idea. <laughs> But, exactly, uh, but uh, yeah, just just sort of double barreling the whole thing, you know, just going, hey, where's the hyphen? We need a hyphen here. So it became the man who was a, you know, the, the, the in whom this work of the spirit was so represented, and um, uh, is the reason that the work of the spirit moves in us. So it's really an amazing point. Um, so you mentioned the two Adams thing, and obviously we'll come, we'll we'll circle back in on that a few times as well. But at least what that, as you summed up there nicely, was just that you know none of that stuff makes sense. It's a big part of those, you know, the argument in those um, New Testament epistles, um, and uh, Paul is clear, uh, clearly seeing seeing something there, um, as clear as daylight. So it would be crazy for us to ignore that um, in terms of its implications. So again, you've got not only a covenant but a covenant of works represented there. Um, the nature of the sanctions, thirdly, uh, what's going on there? Um, I'm simply saying that the life that was offered in the tree of life and the death that was threatened, um, in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were conditional. Um, mm. God did not guarantee life to Adam and Eve and he didn't guarantee death to them. It really and truly depended on whether Adam obeyed or disobeyed. Mm. Good. Yeah, that's great. And then also the fourth point, also very forceful because, um, you know, once you've established the previous points, you've at least got something covenantal there. And then it's a question of asking, well, you know, what kind of covenant as we are? Um, the, the previous things we've mentioned seems to indicate a works covenant, but it's either works of grace, as you point out. 
um, and there was no grace. And we know that because of our previous definition. Um, right. And, and so what else are we left with but works? And that gets drilled home by Paul again in Galatians, right? Yeah, so I'm looking at um, Galatians 3.18 and also uh, Romans 11.6, both of which sure. um, say that um, the inheritance is either by grace or by works, but mm. it can't be by both. Yeah, good. So you got to choose. You <laughs> you got to pick a side. And yeah, uh, yeah your de- definitions are working for you at that point already because um, we know that to, um, in fact, it's in this chapter, don't you? You talk about, hey, what are the implications of saying that there was sin before the fall? Uh, well, terrible. Uh, oh, yes. grace before the fall, at least. Um, terrible. We're saying that, you know, um, really there was sin before sin and God, it has all sorts of implications in terms of God's declaration over his good creation. Um, so yeah, we just don't even want to go there basically. And, um, and that means that you really are you're left with one option according to that sharp contrast and distinction. Amen. Yeah. And it's, it's works. It's works. Totally. So, um, Good. Now, uh, final, uh, it's not the final question, but the next question is, uh, how do we know that Adam was to have earned heaven? And I suppose, and that's a really good thing to ask at this point, because I think a lot of people will track with us. Do, does everyone believe that, that, um, heaven was coming? You know, I, the more I read, the more it's hard to say that everyone believed, um, something, but I yeah. would certainly say that in, my sense from the reading I've done is mm-hmm. that the majority report from the totality of the Reformed tradition is that um, heaven was what was offered to okay. Adam. Yeah. So Good. it would have been the minority report to think that he was just going to... Um, continue living on earth forever and ever. Amen. Yeah, good. Because what I was going to um, say is that the idea that Adam would have continued simply to live in, in the garden uh, just without sin or just, you know, humanity would have continued in that normal state without sin um, must come from a non-covenantal view of the Bible at the end of the day. Um, I would you know, think so. Yeah, you're sort of left with that, aren't you? I mean, there's no way that you would be able to substantiate any kind of eschatology in the beginning without understanding the covenant went with it so yeah and it seems to me anyway when i hear that view expressed to come from folks that are not really sure what to do with genesis 1 and 2 and they're not Mm. they're not going to spend a lot of time trying to uh, figure it out either Mm. so what did murray believe on that point um well i mean as a student of voss someone who actually sat under Gerhardus Voss, uh, mm-hmm. he saw it as eschatological. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, excellent. Um, okay, cool. So how do we know that, though? Um, well, let's see. Try to go in the order of the arguments that mm-hmm. I make here. Okay, good. The first place I go is the tree of life, which we've already talked about. But mm-hmm. I think the fact that we see it here in Genesis chapter 2, and then the next major place. Yes, it is mentioned um, a few other places in the Old Testament, like in... Um, Proverbs, I believe, mm-hmm. but the the next major place we encounter it is in the new heavens, mm. um, in Revelation twenty two, and so yeah. that fact tells us that that's what Adam um, w- was looking at as his reward. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's very forceful. Um, you also talk about the um, the reference to uh, in Ephesians um, with Adam and Christ. Uh, with, with marriage and uh, what's that all about? Um, 
Yes. So let's see. So I remember um, looking at that being, I don't think I heard that. Well, I kind of, you know, I just wanted to, to get a bit of clarity on what you were saying there. So this is one of the other passages that I mentioned along with uh, Romans 5 and uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh-huh. But it, it, it's hard to do on a podcast like this without Going drawing out a diagram yeah. on a board <laughs> because um, you've got Christ and the church, yeah. Adam and Eve and husbands and wives. Mm-hmm. And it sound, when you read it, on the face of it, he's talking to husbands and wives. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he says, you know, husbands love your wives as Christ has loved the church. And then he brings in Adam um, in his argument for um, f- how Christ loved the church mm-hmm. and how husbands are supposed to love their wives. Well, Adam was supposed to have loved Eve that way. Mm-hmm. And if he had, if he had been um, doing his job in the garden, um, the serpent would never have even been able to, to right. tempt Eve. Yes. And right. So it's actually would... his loving of his wife was actually connected to that covenantal probation role. Exactly. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> I love, I love that text at weddings. You know, because <laughs> mm. you kind of you do the you know for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh and everyone's like oh this is so romantic, this mystery is great, <laughs> and everyone's <laughs> like yes it kind of is, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church and everyone just kind of falls silent at that point. <laughs> right. I just this mystery is profound. You know, oh man it's great another one of those Paul moments. Um, okay, cool. So we've got the, um, the issue, uh, oh, we just got New Testament passages there. And then, um, the tree of life. Have we dealt with that? No, we haven't. Yeah. That's where I went first and you, uh, helpfully backed me up a little bit. (laughs) All right, cool. So the tree of life, there it is. And, um, really uh, amazing, I think, because again, you've got this, it's almost like it makes sense of, I mean, even if if we don't see a tree of life at the end, you know, um, and it is just symbolic of, of what we do see, which would be far better than the tree of life in Jesus. Um, then even just mentioning it that way in revelation would, you know, have that doctrinal purpose of ensuring that we understand this offer was before Adam, uh, even before sin entered in. So that's really awesome. Um, and then thirdly, the Sabbath, the rest of God, this is like my favorite one. (laughs) <laughs> right. So we've talked about Adam being created in the Adam and Eve being created in the image of God and um that God did his work and then he entered into his uh rest on the seventh day mm-hmm. which that word rest is sabbath. Mm. Um and when we when we let the book of Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 interpret the sabbath for us we find out that it's not just another 24-hour period. Um, you know, if you hold to six 24-hour days in Genesis 1 and 2, mm. um, the, the seventh day is an eternal day. Mm. Um, mm. And it it is what we mean when we talk about heaven. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that, that means that Adam was supposed to do the work that God gave him to do and then enter into heaven. Yeah. That's what that means. So cool. And it's, um, it's, it's powerful. And in, in, as we, we were just on the previous show, just um, you and Todd were talking about 
um, just the way in which the framework view sort of works backwards from this point in the sense that you know, you've got the seventh day, you know, just kind of conundrum uh, in that it's not a 24-hour day. It's hard to pin it down as that. And then you got to unpack the way that it does get unpacked in um, Hebrews. And um, and so, you know, it just, again, it reinforces everything we've been saying in that this is, this is a highly covenantal thing going on here. And it has this as its specific goal, and, and, and we need to understand Genesis in that light. Um, but then, of course, as you say, I mean, just uh, this is what uh, sets it up for understanding really the whole the whole Bible and what's going to be happening with Christ and and um, and the eschatology of the Bible up front. So, I think it's a really important point to uh, get one's head around. Um, and so, just some of the references there, uh, they're all there in Chris's book, Hebrews chapter three and four. Go check that out. I mean, it's very very explicit there as well. Um, and so, and it's just a powerful thought. I mean, this is, this is, it's been there, you know, God dwelling in heaven. Uh, I just love it because it's, it means that Genesis opens up by saying, this is God, this is how you get to him. And, mm. you know, it just makes sense that the Bible would open up that way rather than lead us straight into a kind of conundrum on, on, um, you know, how, how, how long were the days, you know, or whatever. Um, but, but it would be like, this is God. This is how you get to him. This is how we failed. And this is what God was going to do about it. Into the whole Bible story. Um, it just, it's, it's so, um, it, it brings such a cohesion to the whole thing. Um, so that brings more or less to the conclusion. Um, you've got some more detail in the book. And then you d- give a really nice conclusion um, um, in this chapter as well. And a good little diagram at the end uh, that sort of, more or less brings about the truth that we're saying right now, right? Mm. Yeah. Uh, so this is a diagram that um, develops over the course of the book. So at the end okay. of each chapter, the the diagram um, grows and fills out a little bit more. But what I'm trying to say in the diagram here is that um, Eden was a covenant of works mm-hmm. and that um, eschatology was also there and in play right from the word go. And uh, I just think that that's such an underrated and such an important point because um, it means that heaven has always been the goal. Mm-hmm. It's not something that got tacked on in the New Testament. Um, yeah. And if it has always been the goal, then when we're reading our Bibles or when we're preaching our Bibles, we need to be considering the intersection between eschatology and history mm. um, in the text that we're working with. Yeah, absolutely amazing. And it tells us what heaven is going to be like as well. You know, it takes us, it gives us a certain view of heaven from the beginning, you know. Uh, right. Of course, we don't know the details and as you're saying, all the symbolism, prophetic idiom stance, but but it's just that it has, it, it, it is, it's of the same character. Um, that's an awesome diagram. So it's a little block. And uh, how would you describe this, Chris? Come try, use your descriptive powers. We don't have a whiteboard. What do we have? Different we have people have called it different things, but some of Klein's students called this uh, Klein's submarine. Um, <laughs> yes, I like that. Uh, Lee Irons called it the grid. Um, but <laughs> this is the thing that he would start to to draw with his chalk on the board, and by the end of class, the whole room was just full of chalk smoke and okay. <laughs> right. a mess on the 
So. Okay, cool. So like, I like the submarine. Submarine sticking. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a giant missile or something. <laughs> it's yeah. really uh, cool. So Eden's in the base of the submarine there, powering it along, and uh, you, know, you got the, the new creation tip there. Um, excellent. So go check out. If you're intrigued, uh, go and check out the book. Uh, now you even have more of a reason to do that, and that is on chapter, oh, on page 70 that you see that diagram. Um, I believe that if client saw you snoozing in class, he would throw a piece of chalk at you. Is that right? <laughs> I don't remember that, but um, that would not surprise me. Oh, no, it wasn't snoozing. It was if you got the answer wrong, <laughs> which is even worse. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is hilarious. Yes, yeah, it's just apparently chalk was a big part of the class, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> chalk featured. Uh, but anyways, cool. Awesome. Hey, thanks a million, Chris. Appreciate that time uh, and appreciate it, especially after your marathon uh, prior to this. <laughs> um, thanks for staying with us, brother. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you.